Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? Mr. Shaka Cummings, my partner in crime, Mr. Parker Ainsworth. Welcome to FN Sports, the podcast with two teachers' great sports, biggest issues, Mr. Ainsworth. How are you on this fine Sunday morning, sir? I'm doing okay, Shaka. Doing okay. Uh, Selling some writing of comments about students, and so it's been a, a lot of writing this weekend, but that's okay. How you been doing? I am so good. <laughs> My football team won again on Friday. We are officially 6-0, and so that's wonderful. We are settling into the new house, so that's wonderful. And the University of Kentucky football team won in Knoxville, Tennessee, for the first time since 1984. That's like 70 years before you were even born, Mr. Ainsworth. So I'm doing great. Um, let's go ahead and jump into our gold stars and detentions. You want to hit us with the gold star? Sure. Uh, first, I'm going to gold star a podcast episode that you should go listen to as soon as this one is over. Go listen to uh, Bill Simmons' podcast. It has two shout-outs to my alma mater, Occidental College, and it also interviews a, a cool young kid that – went to the school shock and I worked at many moons ago back when Shaka lived in Texas 
Um, anyway, it's a cool, cool episode, but there are two Hidden Gym Occidental shout-outs in there, so if you find those, let us know you found them. Absolutely. My first gold star is going to go to a fighter by the name of Tiafimo Lopez. And if you watch boxing, you might be familiar with Mr. Lopez. He's only 23 years old, and yesterday he unified the 135-pound lightweight championship fighting against the guy who everyone was saying was the best pound-for-pound fighter on the planet. Mr. Lomachenko goes into this fight, has to fight against Lopez. Lopez basically dominates him in the first six rounds and then is able to split the final six rounds on a lot of judges' scorecards. And so now he has five belts. That's the one thing about boxing that's so crazy because you have all these championship belts. So now he's got five belts. He's 23 years old. His nickname is The Takeover, and he literally has just hit the gravy train, man, because he's <laughs> he's a very difficult fighter to beat. He's ready to go up to 140 pounds. It was awesome. ESPN put on a great card yesterday, so shout-out to Teofimo Lopez. My next little star goes to Trevor Lawrence. Um, if, you want to, <laughs> if you watched college football this weekend, you probably saw at some point what looked like a misprint in Clemson beating Georgia Tech 73-7. to um, It could have easily been a basketball misprint, 73-70. <laughs> However, 73 points in a football game. Uh, Mr. Cummings and I were just doing the math. That means you need the ball at least seven times. They had uh, several, they had, what do we count, seven drives that were less than four plays that ended in scores for the Clemson Tigers. Uh, I, I will say that the Trevor Lawrence stat line, Four and four yards, five touchdowns, QBR up to ninety-seven percent. That sounds like, oh man, what a great game! He only played the first position possession of the second half. Like, <laughs> it really, really, really is just a tremendous outing by a guy that does not want to live in New York City, apparently. So, Shaka, what's your next full star? Please come to New York. Please come to New York. <laughs> uh, my next gold star goes to the Tampa Bay Rays. And let me just say, I hate the Rays because I'm a Yankee fan. So I am inclined to hate them. But that being said, they did everyone who matters in baseball a favor by (laughs) putting away the Houston Astros because the Astros are cheaters. And they don't deserve to be in this World Series now that they're not banging on garbage cans. So I am happy. Tampa goes up 3-0 in the series. Houston wins the next three games. So game seven, that's a coin flip. Tampa was able to hold on. Houston goes home. And I was saying to Mr. Ainsworth, I'm actually, I feel bad for Dusty Baker. Because Dusty, I think, is a good guy who hasn't uh, kind of pulled through in some of these big spots. But I do feel like you probably feel differently, Mr. Ainsworth. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I'll get to how I feel about that later in the detention segment. But my, my next <laughs> gold star also plays into a detention. So I'll go ahead and help make that transition. My gold star goes to Daryl Morey. Uh, for those that didn't see the NBA news this week, Daryl Morey is walking away from the Houston Rockets after a... 14-year run or so in the organization. Um, as general manager, you know, he starts back in the Yao and T-Mac era. They had some injuries along the way, but they pushed the the Lakers team that wins it all in 09. They pushed to seven games without McGrady or Yao on the floor for the series. So I, I, I want to like go back and look at how great that team and run was. And, you know, if they'd had their two all-stars and Hall of Famers healthy, who knows what could have happened. He executes the trade for James Harden. Uh, which a lot of people called a gamble. Some people were like, what are they doing? And they pulled in this guy that's James Harden that has been top three in MVP voting five of the last six years, including his win in 2018. Just another they Hall went, of Famer on his resume. They went and traded for Dwight Howard before his back injuries got the best of him. And I want you all to remember that like people thought Houston was not a big free agency destination. Um, he went out and got Chris Paul. He forced that deal, right? He went out and made the big 2018 run that they did. 
And, and so Darren Moore really, really, really has been at the forefront and top of basketball. Like you'd argue as far as guys that don't have a ring in the last 15 years, there's no one that has no ring with more success. But he has had a giant impact on the way you're watching basketball right now, if you don't realize it, based on small ball, based on analytics, based on all the things that teams are doing. And my transition into detentions comes into the guy he's walking away from in Tillman Fertitta. I've said this how many times in the podcast at this point, Shaka? Tillman Fertitta needs to sell the team. Uh, Fertitta (laughs) is a billionaire that acts broke and he is continuing to get broker and broker he is in all of these industries affected by COVID. i understand that he is losing you know bleeding out money between casinos going down restaurants going down entertainment going down and now sports going down right no fans in the stands those kind of things but here's the deal tillman is you bought this team and said you were going to start competing to win and you continue to run out people that had the winning team you bought in the summer of 17. what is it now 26 months ago that team was arguably hamstring away from a title, certainly hamstring away from a NBA Finals appearance. 26 months later, there's serious talks about blowing this team up because none of the parts are together anymore. Detention, Tone Fertitta, sell the team. Why do we root for basketball teams with awful owners? I don't know. Like, this is new for you, but let me just tell you, <laughs> as someone who's experienced this for decades, uh, it doesn't get better. It only gets worse. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel any better, Shaka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll throw one more gold star in it, and then I'll transition to detention. I want a gold star to University of Tennessee. So the University of Kentucky has a middle linebacker by the name of Chris Oates who suffered major medical trauma in his life during the summer. He literally just got out of rehab dealing with his issues last week and the university of tennessee before the game yesterday versus the university of kentucky tweeted out a uh, picture of a 22 jersey in tennessee orange uh the hashtag was 22 oats strong and they uh sent it at the university of kentucky football team chris oats is number 22 for the university of kentucky it was obviously a great gesture on their behalf so definitely a shout out to them even though we uh, kicked their butts yesterday, not only in football, but also in volleyball. Uh, my first <laughs> detention goes to Dan Mullen. Now, you may remember that I detentioned Dan Mullen last week when he came out and said, hey, Florida needs to have fans in the stands. We need to go ahead and fill the stadium because we went to A&M and they had fans in the stands, and it made a huge difference. This week it comes out that the University of Florida has over 20 cases of COVID in their program between players and coaches. One of those coaches being Dan Mullen himself, the head football coach at the University of Florida. Foot firmly inserted in mouth when you said that <laughs> foolishness. You got COVID running rampant through your program. So all that it says is, you know, how were you managing all the safety precautions that were put in place by the SEC to ensure that these young people don't get this disease? Because we don't know what the impact is going to be. It just makes me question everything about you and your leadership. So my next attention harkens back to a conversation you were starting to have earlier, but it's a very specific, really, really specific person, but I think she's representative of a lot more people. I'm going to detention Ramona Shelburne as much as it hurts me to detention Ramona because she's tremendous in her work with basketball. However, last <laughs> night after the Astros win or after the Astros lose Game 7, after winning three in a row to force the Game 7, Ramona tweeted out, The Astros were so close, it's like they were missing that one extra thing. <laughs> to take a giant jab at the Houston Astros. And here's what I want to say, Ramona, okay? It's almost like they were missing last year's pitching rotation, which went Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, and followed up with uh, Zach Greinke, because Garrett Cole 
moved in the offseason. Justin Verlander missed the whole year with injury. And Zach Grinke is only halfway himself because he has also been hurt this postseason. It's almost like they were pitching with an entirely new bullpen filled with eight rookies in the bullpen, Ramon. It's also like they were doing this entire thing the entire last two and a half months without Jordan Alvarez, the same guy that was the big bat and rookie of the year in last year's lineup. So yes, Ramona, it is almost like this team that got to Game 7 of the ALCS was missing a few things. Like the garbage cans? I'm just confused. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. Uh, my, <laughs> my final detention goes to the University of North Carolina football team because the University of North Carolina's football team went into yesterday ranked number five in the country. They played Florida State at Doak Campbell Stadium. Just so that everyone is aware, Florida State, going into the game yesterday, they were one and three with their only win coming against Jacksonville State. Georgia Tech beat Florida State 16-13 first game of the season. That's the same Georgia Tech team that Trevor Lawrence threw for five touchdowns at 391 yards in the first half on yesterday. And North Carolina lost to these guys, 31-28. This was their opportunity to transform their program, to transition into potentially being a top program. I don't know what happened with Mac Brown and these guys. They have a quarterback who was committed to Florida State, decommitted, and ended up going to North Carolina and Sam Howell. So you would think that he'd want to show up. Nobody showed up. And we're going to transition. We're going to jump into the <laughs> podcast. We're going to talk Nick Saban and whether or not he should have coached yesterday. We're going to talk about the best potential coaching candidates in college football for the open NFL jobs. And we're going to talk about the Seattle Seahawks and whether or not they could go undefeated during the regular season. Don't dismiss that possibility just yet. So without <laughs> further ado, Mr. Ainsworth, are you ready to go, sir? Ready when you are, Shaka. All right, Mr. Cummings. So first thesis today comes from college football games played yesterday. Again, we record this on Sunday. So this is from Saturday's slate of games. The thesis reads, they should not have let Nick Saban Coach the University of Alabama yesterday. Your grade is? That is an F. Now, here's my only problem is that we talked about this off pod, so I feel like I know one of the arguments you're going to use, and I'm going to feel so sick when you use it. Uh, That being said, Mr. Ainsworth, how do you feel about that particular thesis statement? I'm in the C range. Um, I'm going to give it a C. I think there are fair criticisms of letting him coach yesterday, and I think there are some... Very clear, like, well, if he, anyway, so no duh kind of points about why he should have been able to coach yesterday. So we'll talk more in a second, but I think, I'm thinking I'm in the C range. Okay, Mr. Cummings, you gave this an F. You think it's ridiculous that anyone would have kept Nick Saban from coaching Alabama on Saturday. So talk to us. Why do you think it's an F? I'm not necessarily going to say that it's ridiculous. What I will say is the SEC has protocols in place around COVID. These include daily testing. These include protocols around if you receive a positive test, what needs to happen in order for you to get back, whether it's a player getting back onto the field or a coach getting back into the coaching environment. And to this point, those protocols have worked fairly well. Now, we could argue whether or not teams should even be playing, but if you're going to play, The protocols that the SEC has had in place have worked well. They've caught players and coaches who are positive. It's allowed them to 
postponed games. Vanderbilt did not play yesterday. They were supposed to. Florida was supposed to play LSU yesterday. Those games didn't happen, right? So it's allowed them to catch people, let them know that they have the disease, quarantine, and hopefully everyone comes back safe and sound. So the protocols seem to have worked. The protocols that were put in place had Nick Saban tests. He received the positive test result. He isolated. And then he was tested on three consecutive days and had three consecutive negative tests after receiving that positive, which also, by the way, he was negative, negative, negative until he got the positive. It wasn't like he was positive for multiple days and this was like the tail end of him having COVID. It seems that the issue here is that he got a false positive, which means if you're following all of the protocols and he has a false positive, you should let him coach. Just like you should let a player play if it's a false positive. And if he doesn't have COVID, there's no reason to restrict him from coaching. And with something as serious as COVID, it's hard to try to take that serious context and remove it from the football piece. But I want to put this football context on the discussion around Nick Saban. So you think about the ramifications of the game. You had the number two team in the country versus the number three team in the country. Those are teams that are going to compete for the college football playoff. Those are teams that are competing to win the SEC. As big a game as you can have, that's what Alabama and Georgia is. So to have that level of game, to have it have been impacted by a coach who had a false positive, who really was healthy enough to coach, and they say, nope, you still can't coach. What if Georgia would have won that game? What kind of questions would it create? There's still a college football playoff committee that has to take all that into account, and it feels like that would have made those decisions that come at the end of the season really tough. And it ends up having an impact on some other teams, a team like BYU that's still undefeated, still beating people, and they're not in the Power Five. Like, to say, oh, well, we're going to keep Alabama in because of the craziness of the Georgia game. Like, it would have been tough for them. So the football context tells me that he should have been able to coach as well. Well, I do agree that it, like, I mean, they're paying him $8.5 million to coach, right? And so, like, at the end of the day, if they're paying him $8.5 million to coach as an institution and he is healthy enough to coach, then, you know, that seems like a reason to make him earn his $8.5 million. But uh, I will also say that... Your argument is echoed by one Clay Travis, by the Outkick Network, by that entire group of, we'll say the word analyst loosely, and I think that means that that half the argument must be wrong because those guys are never right. But what I will say- <laughs> I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is, is that part of the things you're saying that are accurate seem to stem from this idea that that would have been a close game. And it ended up, I mean, it was close at halftime. It ended up playing out to be 41 to 24 Alabama. I don't know how much they necessarily needed Nick Saban as, you know, as much as he is a tremendous coach. They're also a very talented football team. I think a lot of my, because I gave it a C and some of them are reasons I'd flunk it. And I think you echoed this very well. If I'm going to stick to why I had it, gave it a C and not an F, some reasons I think that it would have been beneficial to not let him coach is, A, we don't really completely understand this virus. We're still learning what false positive means. Does that mean that it went dormant at some point? Does that mean that he really did never have it? And also, we're looking at a virus that 
as an old man himself, right? Nick Saban is 68 years old, right? That's very much in the demo of people that are negatively affected by this very strongly. He should be resting in a lot of ways if he had any sense that he could have been positive. I also, just in what I've, anything I've ever read about Nick Saban and trying to like learn more about being a coach or more about working with young men and women or whatever, Nick Saban is the kind of guy that because he knew he had a potential to work today or on Saturday, he did not stop working Thursday, Friday, right? Before, while he was taking his negative test to make sure that it was a false positive. And had any of those popped up as also positive, and it was not a false positive, that also would have been, he works too hard for his own health, I guess I should say. And so that also would have been detrimental. Sports are not just optics and sports are not just whatever, but there is an optics to this. There is the optics that this is an international pandemic, right? As an international pandemic, if we have one real marquee game in college football this weekend, right? There was there was no game that any had anywhere close to the gravity of a number two versus a number three team. To have a coach on the sideline who tested positive this week for COVID, regardless of what happened in the, in the two days after, who tests positive for COVID this week, to be taking his mask off, ranting up and down the sidelines, in referees' faces yelling, is not a good look. And I don't think I can get behind supporting that either. Now, could some of that have been negated? Sure. I, I, do, I also think that in a similar optics vein, and I don't mean to nitpick every point you said, about the SEC having this under control, I... That's not what I said. I said the SEC has protocols and procedures in place, and so far the protocols and procedures have worked. Under control so, would be what basketball has done, right? Under control is we were able to get through a whole season. We didn't have these types of issues because we bubbled. That's not what the SEC has done. Okay. But what the SEC has done is they found people who are positive and they've postponed games, and the testing is working because they're finding the positives. That's So I just want to make sure that I'm clear there. Well, but I'd also argue that is – if the, is the testing working if we're not getting people out before it's spreading? Because very clearly you had an outbreak in Florida this week after they played at a very packed Kyle Field a week ago, right? And so is that a protocol that's really working if, even if we argue they didn't get it from a player on AM, if they got it from something happened in the handful of days at Kyle Field or something happened as soon as they got back to Gainesville, you know, so... Are things working? I think it, it, that becomes a bigger conversation about what is working and what is the goal of it because you are still having outbreaks and teams losing games and so on. Um, now, it, they are pulling away. They're not playing kids that are knowingly sick, I guess, and those kinds of things. But, again, I, the idea of working is interesting to me. I guess I do come back to the C, though, because, like you said, if there is indications that he is healthy – he is getting paid $8.5 million at a state university to coach the football team. He ought to go earn that money. You know, they beat Georgia 41-24. He ends up, he'll, apparently it's false positive. We'll see how he, his body reacts in the next few days. Shout out to Jalen Waddell for a giant catch. I think that was in the third. Anyway, Jalen yeah, Waddell was right at the was start in, of the third quarter. He was impossible to coach against in high school, so good to he's see him doing good things. He's also impossible to coach against in college. Like he's nice. And I, I have a feeling he'll be impossible to coach against in the pros, and it's good to know it wasn't just us. Uh, <laughs> 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 but I, anyway, I I just have a hard time sitting here thinking that they needed him there. I know it's two number versus number three, and so on Friday you don't know that. But in hindsight now, it's like, man, they, they really – I mean – if anything, whatever big halftime speech you could have given could have been done on FaceTime. Like I just oh, okay. So let's let's break down the points that you made now. So let's start with questioning the idea of the testing working. What then would 
if we're not catching people who have the disease, then why tests at all? Like that's the I the testing is working because we're catching people who are sick and contagious. Right now, we can argue whether or not all of the protocols and procedures are working because obviously the disease is still spreading in these places where you're finding people who have the disease. What I would then go to, however, what are the procedures and protocols that are put in place at individual institutions and within individual programs? So in other words, I know because I'm here in Lexington, I know a little bit in terms of the inside about what the University of Kentucky is doing with its football players and how seriously they are taking procedures and protocols with their players in terms of interacting with folks outside of the football facility. And I also know a little bit of insight about what they're doing in the football facility. I don't want the University of Kentucky lumped in with Florida because what I don't know what Florida was doing. I know that Florida had a coach that wanted to put people in the stands and now he's got 21 players and coaches that are sick, including himself and himself. Yeah. Right. So I don't want the protocols and procedures at this institution to be lumped in with that institution. But we also have to understand that those things are going to be different. It's just like the Tennessee Titans in the NFL versus how other organizations are handling it. But the fact that you're catching people who have the disease means that the testing is working because you want to catch people, let them know that they have it so that they can isolate and so that institutions can react accordingly. So I would start there. Um, I want to talk about the optics piece. I understand the point of what the optics look like considering that he had the positive. What I would counter that with is simply, what do the optics look like when the man has had three consecutive days of negative tests and you don't let him coach? I think that there's optics there as well. And I don't know that those optics are necessarily sending the right message about testing. If we're testing and you're getting negatives, then why shouldn't I be allowed to coach? It's not like he tested and got one negative. He tested the outlier again is the positive. All of his tests leading up to the positive were negative. Then he got popped with the one positive. Then all the tests afterward are negative. So the outlier is there. So what I also think that when you're back to optics, you could very much argue the inverse and the optics from the positive test on Wednesday and the optics of coaching four days. Like, I think that's the deal with this testing thing is we're, learning more about it but i mean this disease is less than but we also old, right? we also have to take into account then human error right so like i understand what you're saying about the we're learning about the virus so we don't know all the pieces about the virus we do know pieces about human beings though we know that human beings are fallible human beings make mistakes and so what we have known about the disease up until this point is that you don't have it for one day and then it goes away that's based on the information that's out there from the cdc the experts tell us that. So if the experts tell us that, we should trust that and understand that human beings are in charge of doing these tests. And if we get the positive around all the negatives, like it's Occam's razor. The most logical explanation is probably the right one. The most logical explanation is some dude messed it up, right? And that's why you got the positive. I do want to touch on the other two points, though, that you made. Um, you talked about the fact that Alabama won the game pretty big, and so did they need Saban? Understand that Nick Saban does not call offensive plays. He does not call defensive plays. Nick Saban's job is to be overall program manager and on game day make sure that big decisions are made and make sure the halftime adjustments are made. So the fact that they were losing that game at halftime, the fact that they actually ended up driving the ball to get into field goal range with under 30 seconds left, like this is why Nick Saban gets – eight 
and a half million dollars. That and he recruits better than anyone in the country, right? So he made those decisions, and we don't know if those decisions would have been made had he not been there. But we do know what the result of the game was, and we know that he was there. So I would argue that absolutely Alabama needed Nick Saban because they were losing that game at halftime. The last piece that you talked about was this idea that he maybe works a little too hard and maybe he should well, I want to also, back. I would clarify that I could say that about a large, large majority of college football coaches work a crazy amount of hours and work very, very hard. And he, I just like, so he is like the most successful. So I don't want to like take away from him and say he's not successful, but that is a criticism you could have about any college coach who gets this disease is working overtime like that. Absolutely. Would, and I guess my point is like, I don't know that I'm willing to jump into the telling people how hard they need to work. Like I'm not willing to jump into the, you need to be doing this in a certain way and other people do, you do it how you do it. Like at the end of the day, if it didn't work in Alabama, he's the only one getting fired, right? So he's going to do it how he does it. And then if this is how he feels like he needs to do it to be successful, then that's fine because he's the one who's ultimately going to be held accountable to it. If he only knows this speed, then that's the speed that he knows. And I don't want to, I guess I don't want to get into this uh, idea of critiquing like his individual methodologies around kind of the way that he coaches, knowing that there's a global pandemic. The reality is there's a global pandemic. And if there was the global pandemic, we probably could still question Nick Saban in terms of the insane hours that he puts in because we're just worried about the stress that it puts on his body anyway. Right? I'm not just tying it to the global pandemic. I'm tying it to the fact that there's I just have there's zero indication from anything that he slowed down once he got the positive. But he quarantined. Test on Wednesday. But he quarantined. So but like you and I, that's not slowing down. That's that, that just, is slowing down because he wasn't there with all of his coaches spreading the disease because he believed he was positive. So now if like what you're saying is the man has to stop working like. Did our president stop working when he had coronavirus? Like people who have these jobs don't just stop because they have the disease. And to take anyone's individual sensibilities about what they should be doing in terms of work and then project those onto other people, I think is just an unfair metric. But he he did get flown to Walter Reed for a weekend and do anyway. Like I, I'm not we're not going down that path too far. But I, what I will say is that it may have been in his best interest if it had been really positive because there's no indication that he slowed down between Wednesday morning or Wednesday midday when it went public anyway and Saturday morning when it was like, okay, he's coaching today. We also don't have any indication of when he found out that he had the first negative after the positive. Like, we don't know. Listen, he could have stopped working for 12 hours, gotten a negative and be like, wait a minute, I'm going to go ahead and work because if I get two more negatives, I'm going to be able to coach. Like, I guess there's a lot of questions that we don't have answers to. And so, again, to project – our own sensibilities onto Nick Saban to me feels unfair. Okay, Parker. So the thesis statement for this commercial is James Harden has the best beard in sports. What do you think about that thesis statement? Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we we seem to have an affinity for our beards between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But... You're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have this heated comb to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it helps <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're listening to our show, you can use 
FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your bombs, your shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out the beard struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, the beard struggle's got all the products that you need. The beard struggle, feast your face. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, we're going to go ahead and move on to our second thesis statement. And it's around college football head coaches and the potential for NFL jobs. The thesis statement is, Dabo Sweeney is the best option from amongst the NCAA head football coaching ranks to be the next NFL head coach. I say that to you, Mr. Ainsworth. What do you say? I'm in like a high B range. I'm going to go ahead and say B plus because you always call me an easy grader anyway. Uh, but <laughs> what I will say is I think that, you know, if we're looking at NCAA head division one head coaches, I have a short list of P I think my list is much shorter than yours based on off pod conversations. And I think he's at the top of my short list. I want to investigate some people that uh, maybe aren't at the big program, or maybe not on my list. So I'm going to give myself some room at a B plus. What do you think? C minus. Uh, I, he's not, <laughs> he's just not the profile that I personally would look for, but that doesn't mean that some NFL team wouldn't be interested. Okay. Mr. Ainsworth, you're definitely higher on Dabo Sweeney as a potential NFL head coach than I am. So I am curious. You went B plus. Talk to me about that. Well, I think part of what my understanding about Dabo is, is also in looking at the growth he's had at Clemson. And I want to say we both laughed off pod. He's got 9.2 million reasons to never leave Clemson <laughs> every single year. That's before was, any bonus or any incentive. Any you know they pay for his anything. house. You know he's got his own coaching yeah. show, all those endorsements. Yeah, completely. But what I will say is that I think part of his success at Clemson has not just been program building, has not just been finding recruits or the correct staff around him. He could bring the you know the staff with him. He could use the same recruiting type concepts you would assume to bring in the big free agents but what i will say is one thing that he does understand is where football is going you know if you look at the young crop of quarterbacks including his current guy trevor lawrence he really does have this understanding of where the offensive side of football is going and we could do some other podcast conversation talking about how Honestly, football is all going offense because the rules are making it to where you can't defend like you could have even 10 years ago, much less 50. And I just I see him as that kind of a guy. He also, I think, has a great locker room presence that while it plays well currently with young kids in college, does not like come off as immature in the way he would handle an NFL locker room. I also think there are going to be a couple franchises we talked about last week about what franchise has the best position for a new head coach we talked about the houston texans i think we both agreed if i remember correctly have a great would be a great landing spot that is his former quarterback in deshaun watson if i remember correctly you threw in your new york jets into that fold even though they currently as we're recording this have a head coach the new york jets ought to have a shot at drafting trevor lawrence which is again another one of his kids and that quarterback coach relationship is super important and if he can frankly if you can coach up trevor lawrence if you can coach up deshaun watson and they both have super high positive things to say about him i'd assume he could have a similar relationship with other successful quarterbacks i i just i sit here and see a lot of positives to it and i see a relatively i say relatively because i think your list is longer 
short list of NCAA head coaches I would carry over to the NFL, so I would think he's high. Yeah, he'd be okay. He wouldn't be my first choice. He wouldn't be my second choice. He wouldn't be my third choice. And if you went Dabo, especially if you were the New York Jets in particular, I would kind of get it because maybe he's the guy that ensures that if you have the number one pick, Trevor Lawrence is going to want to come, right? Here's my thing with Dabo Sweeney. I think that Dabo Sweeney is one of the best collegiate coaches going. And, I mean, that's not a hot take necessarily. There are some things that translate to the pros that you can do in college that simply, I mean, it, they would stand out, right? So a guy, if you, when Chip Kelly got a head coaching job in the NFL, that made sense to me because he's an offensive innovator. He's a program innovator as well in terms of how he manages health and nutrition and practice organization and these sorts of things. So when you look at someone like that getting a job, that makes a lot of sense to me. When Jim Harbaugh left Stanford and went and took the 49ers job, that made sense to me because he was an innovator in terms of play calling, in terms of uh, how he was utilizing the run game. When Lane Kiffin got a head coaching job, that made sense to me because he was an offensive innovator based on what he did at USC, based on what he did at Tennessee. So that even made sense to me. Dabo doesn't make as much sense because to me, what Dabo is is a guy who comes into a program and he changes the tenor of that program. And I think that I heard it mentioned on ESPN that what Dabo is is a culture builder. That type of coach, in my opinion, doesn't work in the NFL. Those guys are pros. They don't need the culture builder. You build culture by winning. So if we win, culture is going to be great. If we lose, culture is going to suck. So I don't need rah-rah. You're paying me $5 million if I'm an average player. You're paying me $10 million if I'm a great player. I don't need your rah-rah. I know that I'm good. I need you to scheme up the systems that are going to allow me to showcase my abilities, my talents, and to shine. And when you look at Dabo, he's a culture builder, and he knows how to hire assistant coaches because Brett Venables is probably, I think that objectively people would say he's one of the top assistant coaches in the country. You can argue that he's the best. He's the best assistant coach in the country as the defensive coordinator. Tony Elliott calls the offensive plays for Clemson. So Dabo doesn't call plays on the other side of the ball. Now, I'm not knocking a coach who doesn't call plays. I'm okay with that, especially collegiately, where, again, your job is really building culture. And we know that in the NFL, most guys aren't play callers, right? You have an offensive and a defensive coordinator most times. Normally, when you don't have one, it's because your program's in trouble. Um, so I understand that he could go and transition to that model. That being said... What's the innovation that he brings to the NFL other than that culture piece, which again, in the NFL, I don't see that working. If he doesn't bring some sort of an innovative mind to the game that he could then apply to one side of the ball, or even special teams for that matter, then I don't know what he brings other than the culture piece, which I think that that's a tough sell. If, if it was Atlanta who needs a head coach, and they're like, hey, listen, we're Southeast. This guy's in South Carolina. Let's bring him in. And you say, hey, Matt Ryan, we're bringing in Dabo Sweeney. 
Matt Ryan's like looking at like what's what does this dude have that I that's gonna add to me and what I'm doing? Because the last guy at least was a defensive guy, and we had this pretty cool cover three scheme that we were running and got us to the Super Bowl. He's gonna come in and tell me as a former MVP how to run this offense. Or is he going to come in and make the defense better so we're not giving up all those points in the second half to teams like Dallas and then losing games this season or to teams like New England and then we're losing Super Bowls? Because if he's not going to come in and do those things, then I don't really necessarily feel great about this guy coming in. Now, maybe he's bringing Brett Venables with him, and all of a sudden that feels awesome. But if you're Brett Venables, you could get your first head coaching job once Dabo leaves. So maybe you stay at Clemson. They pay you 6 or $7 million a year. And you just hang loose there. So I don't know. I'm questionable on Dabo. And that's not even getting into the number of guys who I think could potentially do it better. Well, I, I go through a couple things. One, I would point out that, you know, Tony Elliott is very much a Dabo guy. And so Elliott, for those that know in the background, he played at Clemson about 20 years ago. He has only worked collegially in the state of South Carolina, I guess, because he was at, at South Carolina, at a couple of smaller schools, and then back at Clemson. But he was also just the co-offensive coordinator until this year. So as impressive as the 73 points was on Saturday, um, he this is his first year as the lone play caller. Yeah, so but, like, yeah but he's been calling plays. So even when he was what I, co-offensive what, coordinator, Dabo wasn't calling the plays. Right, but what I'm getting at is I assume their relationship because – Dabo has watched this guy grow up from a not quite GA, but just positional running back coach, which, as you know, I don't mean to take shots at running back coaches, Shaka, but you've said to yourself, it might have been off pod, but running back coaches, if you got kids like CJ Spiller when he was the running back coach, when uh, Tony Elliott started there, like if you got kids, your job's a lot easier. No, the Dabble running back are- coach is probably the least important <laughs> position coach outside of like kicking coaches. Not kidding. Well, I used to play running back, by the way, and I've been a running back coach, so I know. <laughs> all, all I'm saying is that. Dabo and him have a very close relationship because he's he's helped grow this guy, Tony Elliott, throughout his career. And I don't know if that means that he would come with Dabo if Dabo came to pros or if that means that Dabo would hand him the keys to the Clemson car as he walked away. I don't, I don't know how that would work. but I So I do think that there'd be some transition with bringing his play caller, Venables as well, with him. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, I know that there are more cases of culture guys that have trouble in the pros than there are than culture guys that are successful in the pros. But the one that Dabo strikes me as the most like is by far the most successful in Pete Carroll. Our next thesis, we're going to talk a lot more about Pete Carroll's success this year, but Pete Carroll has been successful in Seattle for a long time and was known as a culture guy at USC as well. And I would argue that Clemson's run the last four years is eerily similar to that USC run for their you know four or so year span between the Linerts and the Reggie Bushes and so on. Um, I I see a lot of parallels there, and I think there's a cultural element to what he brings to Seattle as well. Um, it's a little more old man wisdom, while Dabble has a little bit more of Deep South wisdom. But there's <laughs> something there's something going on there, right? And so I think that that's one of my comparisons because I think you are right that most culture guys don't cut in the NFL as just culture guys. But Dabo seems to be really, really, really good and really, really, really special as a culture guy. And so I was tying him in my head to more of a Pete Carroll, someone else who is really, really, really good and really, really, really special in those areas. No, I'm happy that you brought Pete Carroll into the conversation because it leads me to the other reason why there are several guys who I would go with before Dabo. And that's Pete Carroll isn't just a culture guy. Pete Carroll was also a guy who had NFL experience. So the difference with Pete Carroll and Dabo is that Pete Carroll 
knew what it was like to be an NFL head coach, then could take the culture pieces that he built at USC and meld them with what he already knew about head coaching in the NFL. What people forget about Pete Carroll is that he was the head coach for the New York Jets and he was the head coach for the New England Patriots before he went to USC. Then he went to USC, had that level of success, and then came back to the NFL, and now it's had success with Seattle. So Pete Carroll, I know for a generation of fans, they think of him as a college guy. As a former Jet uh, head coach, I, I know him as an NFL guy. And my thing with Dabo is that if I'm going to go into the college ranks, I want an innovator like Lincoln Riley. I want an innovator like Gary Patterson. Or... I want guys who have had NFL experience and who can then take their collegiate success and apply it to the NFL. And there's a bunch of guys that actually can do that. I'm just looking at the SEC. Kirby Smart coached in the NFL once upon a time. He's not the head coach at Georgia. Lane Kiffin was an NFL head coach. He's also an NFL position coach. Hey, why not bring someone like that in, right? You can look at Jim Harbaugh who's at Michigan, who's had success as an NFL head coach. You can look at Kurt Ferentz, who's at Iowa, who's very unlikely at this point because he's just older, right? You can look at David Shaw, who's out in Stanford, who NFL teams have been salivating about, especially when you start taking into account the lack of African-American head coaches, right? So He this, gets a lot of calls just because, like, you know, people want to follow the rumor rule. He's a really good candidate for a lot of teams. Absolutely. And the reality is, is that he's also an innovator because what Stanford has been able to do offensively since Harbaugh has left, it hasn't stagnated. Stanford has still been offensively quite innovative and been sending guys to the pros. Uh, I mean, listen, if you want to go Will Muschamp, Will Muschamp hasn't even had the level of success as a head coach collegiately at South Carolina or Florida. But he also was a defensive coordinator once upon a time in the NFL. So you could look at a guy like that even. So to me, there's just several folks to consider who have, in my opinion, the right mix of innovator and NFL experience. And they strike me as being a better possibility than Dabo. Now, the one caveat, the Jets, because if you want Trevor Lawrence to want to come to New York. And there's a lot of reasons to want to come to New York. Maybe Dabo Sweeney cements it for him if he's the number one pick. So something like that, I think, needs to be taken into account. Maybe Deshaun goes to the ownership in Houston and says, hey, I need Dabo here. Like, if you get that type of a situation, then that, to me, could make a little more sense. But there's just some other guys, man, that, to me, they're better prospects for the gig than Dabo Sweeney well and I also want to like emphasize that this is an entire thesis based on college candidates I, I would say that any NFL team needs to call Eric Bieniemy or Robert Sala before they call these college guys uh, Sala being the defense coordinator in San Francisco Eric Bieniemy the OC in Kansas City those guys are very very deserving of at least the, at least the interview um, I I think that when I look at college coaches besides Dabo I you know people want to jump to Saban. Saban's not leaving college football. The Saban doesn't best... even make sense at this point. Him being yeah. almost seventy years old, right? It doesn't make sense. The thing he's best at is recruiting, and that's you know while it does translate, I would argue a little bit it is not the same. Some people will pull up Brian Kelly. I don't know if that's a bit as good a jump as people. I actually like that idea. Uh, see, I, anyway, that's interesting. That's save that for another pod. Um, but what I will say is that you bring up Kirby Smart living here in Dallas. People bring up Lincoln Riley. 
Um, I think the list is relatively short and, you know, I understand why a guy like smart and his NFL resume would stick out a little bit more than Davo. But I, I tend to think that if the job of the coach is to help us win games, I want the guy who's done that the most. And Davo's won a lot of games in the last five years. And so that's why I, I tend to lean on him. There have been a lot of college guys who won a lot of games in college and came to the NFL and didn't win any. So <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just no, saying. Right, but you could say the same. I mean, Smart could show up and lose a lot of games as well. Any of these college guys could do that. That that's that could very well happen. Yeah, and then I just want to go to a model then that would at least replicate the guy who has seemed to come in most recently and had some level of success, which is the P. Carroll, right? So then I want the culture innovator who has some NFL experience. Dabo only checks one of those boxes. So why go with the guy who checks one-third of the boxes when there are at least guys out there who might check two-thirds of the boxes? We haven't even talked about a guy like Lovey Smith, who was an NFL head coach and actually had some success, had a team in the Super Bowl, right? We haven't even talked about James Franklin. We haven't even talked about Derek Mason. Like, there's, there's just other guys. All right, Mr. Cummings, our last thesis in this football-heavy week is to the NFL game now and looking at Pete Carroll and those Seattle Seahawks. Uh, the thesis reads... The Seattle Seahawks will go undefeated this regular season. They're currently 5-0. and What do you say, Mr. Cummings? So here's the thing. Like, I want to go A. Like, I really do. And then my head is what's telling me you have to take into account some other pieces. And you can't just go A here. I think I'm going to go B- minus because of hmm. my hesitancy around some of the other pieces. That being said... Oh, man, I think they got a legit shot. What do you say, Mr. Ainsworth? So that's interesting. I was um, also thinking, my, I looked at their schedule, and my immediate thought was, oh, my God, that's an A. And then as I started thinking through things, I thought, I talked myself off the ledge, but I don't guess as far back. I'm going to set it a B plus. I think a little bit higher of it than you, but I still see like two or three potential issues in the schedule as I look at it. All right, Mr. Cummings. So... We both walked up and almost leapt off to give this an A. Then we both walked it back a little bit. I think you walked it back a little bit more than I did, though. So I've got to ask, what made you take those extra couple steps back? Absolutely. Uh, I know that we are going to have very similar thoughts on why this should be an A. So I'm going to talk about the things that made me actually jump backward a little bit. I want to start with the fact that if it was easy for NFL teams to go undefeated, more teams would have done it. There are only two teams that have made it through a regular season undefeated in the history of the league, and only one of them made it through the postseason undefeated as well, right? So the Miami Dolphins pop champagne when everyone loses their game, right? So we know that that's only happened once in NFL history. The New England Patriots, thank you, Eli Manning, they were able to get to the Super Bowl, but they couldn't finish the deal, right? Because it's difficult to do. I was wondering when the joke was going to come in. I was wondering when the when the reference, but. No, absolutely. Eli was coming in early. <laughs> you can't spell elite without E-L-I. And so I look at that and I say, man, it's it's difficult to do. Even when you have good teams, we've seen great teams lose games, right? The Kansas City Chiefs this season are a solid team. They lost last week, right? And so even good teams lose games. And in this particular season where COVID is an issue, we don't know if COVID could ever impact the Seattle Seahawks. What if Russell Wilson gets COVID and has to miss two weeks? All of a sudden, do the Seahawks look like a team that can go undefeated? I don't know that they look like a team that could go undefeated. I would take them to lose games without Russ. What if 
it ravages the team enough which starts taking out other key players. All of a sudden, you got issues. What if you just get a series of injuries because COVID didn't allow you to have a true training camp in preseason? These things can still happen. 2020 is the year where even if a team looks like they could go undefeated, I'm going to slow my roll. So it's funny because you said 2020, anything could happen. Part of the idea of them going undefeated to me is also 2020, anything could happen. <laughs> the The truth is, is, like you said, it's really, really hard to go undefeated in the NFL. And if it were easier, more teams would do it. There's a reason you have undefeated college teams every year and not undefeated pro teams. But as I look at their schedule, outside of their division, <laughs> the, the only the only difficult game as I see it, is their game at the Buffalo Bills. The rest of their tough games are in division, and you can't avoid those. Um, they get to play at Arizona against uh, the Kyler Murray Phenom show that is happening there, but they get it after this bye week. Um, they get to play the San Francisco 49ers after that, and the Niners are still going to be beat up at that point. Uh, then they go to Buffalo, like I said. The Rams are down. They get the Cardinals again, but that's at home on a Thursday. But then they go to Philly. They have the Giants, Jets, the Washington football team, and the Rams again before finishing up at San Francisco. So the losses I see potentially are if they're playing a Thursday against the Cardinals after being in L.A. playing the Rams. Right, That could be tough because the Thursday turnaround. Obviously, I also think at Arizona would be difficult, but they have a bye week before that. Then at Buffalo, like we said, um, and then... The last game of the season, week 17, they're playing at San Francisco. And so if they're playing at San Francisco in the last game of the season, and they are 15-0 at that point, they probably rest their starters, right? Like, why would you put your guys on the field against San Francisco in a game that may not be worth it? I also think that it's worth pointing out that, like you said, COVID could hit them at any point, but COVID could also hit these other teams they're playing at any point. So that, like game against Buffalo, we're both pointing out, could very well be against Buffalo without Josh Allen. Who knows, right? Who has any idea what that's going to look like? Absolutely. Um, they've won any of the questionable games they have in their past, right? They beat New England. At, they made the defensive stop at the goal line. They beat Minnesota. They had the victory by doing the opposite, scoring at, down by the goal line, right, to DK Metcalf. Um, I, I just I see them having a really, really, relatively speaking, easy road ahead of them. That just doesn't happen that often. Like, that's really, I think, a big, <laughs> big part of this. It just doesn't happen. No, it just doesn't happen. And I, that's that's obviously huge. What I will say is the fact that, obviously, they drew the NFC East and the AFC East as their two <laughs> divisions that they play is huge for them, right? Because we know that the NFC East and the AFC East are not the strongest divisions. We did a thesis about how the NFC East, and we both agreed, is the worst division. Like, seriously, someone could maybe win that division at 6-10. and 10. Like, not even kidding. Um, I would not be surprised. Like, I, I would probably be less surprised that a 6-10 and 10 team won their division than I would be Seattle going undefeated because that division is that bad. And as I look at the Seahawks, the Buffalo game at Buffalo. Now, I will say this. Seattle is a team that has actually had success going East Coast and playing games at 1 o'clock, it normally is very difficult for West Coast teams to do. They actually do it fairly well. But that game, that stands out for me. And I will say, like, you wrote off the Rams kind of quickly there. The Rams are 4-1. and one. So the fact is you got to play them twice, like, I get it. Maybe the Rams weren't what they 
were two years ago when we looked at them last year. But the Rams this year are 4-1. The Rams have played this version of Seattle. So the Rams are as familiar with the Seahawks as any team because they're in their division. So I, I just look at the Rams, and I'm not writing off that that game at L.A. I'm also not writing off the game at the end of the season where the Rams go to Seattle either. Another tricky little game in there, and I understand, the NFC East is bad. To go to Philly for a night game on November 30th, that's the kind of game that the Eagles will be up for. And I don't know what the Eagles will be at that time. It feels like the Cowboys having lost Dak, that they're going to take a step back, which means that the Eagles seem to be the only logical team that can then emerge and potentially take over the division. And if the Eagles are feeling like, hey, we're going to win this division, and maybe they're coming in with a little bit of swagger there, that night game in Philadelphia could be a tough deal. I mean, the piece that trumps all of this for me, and you talked about Seattle being a special team. I actually would argue that Seattle isn't a special team. Their quarterback is a special player. And he's elevating the rest of the team. And so Russ and this season, man, that's what makes me think there's a potential that they could just carry this thing through. If there's anyone who would kind of galvanize the team around this idea of, hey, let's just go ahead and win them all, it feels like Russell Wilson is that guy. Like he would want to do it, win this MVP, go beat everybody, go win that Super Bowl He's going to pass it into the end zone so that way they can stop talking about Marshawn Lynch having need, having to get that ball at the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all of that in my mind is stuff that Russ probably thinks about, even though he won't say it. And then he'll go out there and just start to execute. They have a special young receiver, too, in DK Metcalf. They've got a special old receiver, too, in Tyler Lockett. They've got they've got a lot of special pieces. but it, it just And Pete Carroll. I mean, they got a special coach yeah. in Pete Carroll, a dude who's won everywhere he's been. Anyway, but it all centers around Russ. It all centers on Russ. They will have, because they have their bye fairly early in the season, right? They're five games in. They have their bye. They're going to have 11 games. Now, this is obviously COVID. You have to take into account with all this, but they'll have 11 consecutive weeks of playing football games. How healthy are you as you go through those 11 weeks? Can you finish strong? And again, once you get to the end of the season, it depends on if you need these games, right? But if they're fighting for that undefeated season, it feels like they'll play hard at the end, too. You get these mm-hmm. moments, too, where, like, maybe they could lose a game, but the special thing happens when Mike Zimmer goes for it on fourth down. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's the kind of thing that you end up remembering at the end, man. So I also think there's one big element of this bye week that neither one of us has talked about yet, and I kind of thought as the New Yorker you would is – Jamal Adams is new to this system. Jamal Adams was picked up a couple weeks ago, and Jamal Adams now has a bye week to sit in a film room and actually learn this defensive scheme and terminology and be an even better player coming out of it than he's been the last couple weeks going into it. He's a 25-year-old, all-everything safety that can help cement that defense in the same way they had Earl Thomas do it for several years, Cam Chancellor with Earl Thomas. You could argue who was the alpha dog in that all you want, but they – no, you can't that, argue that. It was Cam Chancellor. Cam Chancellor was the alpha dog. If you say Earl Thomas, you're wrong. He was certainly the bigger freak of nature that allowed you to do a lot of He was 240 things. pounds. He was defended. Like, literally, he was the alpha dog. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger dog, for sure. But what I'll say is that Jamal Adams is going to come out of this bye week an even stronger defensive presence. I also think it's interesting listening to Russell Wilson talk. Obviously, in the, in the bye week, you see guys take a lot more media availability about how he and his he works with Trevor Moad, who was a mental mental strength and conditioning coach 
originally from I, with the IMG Academy, but he's done a lot of work with NFL and pro and uh, NFL and major college football teams. Um, Moad and he worked on like the entire offseason. Like you don't know when it's going to happen, what's going to happen, etc. But there will be a football kicked off, and you will be playing quarterback. And he had this big long deal on this on that Bill Simmons podcast earlier. I talked about where he's talking about how like he knew and was ready that football would happen and it might not look the same. It might not feel the same. It might not have the same time, et cetera. But this like, idea of visualization of it all. And he has seen like all he like visualized in the same way you hear like Bill Russell talk about in the same way you hear about Kobe talk about it. Like he has done these same kinds of visualization practices that Tom Brady does to all, all these guys. I mean, he, he has been looking for this season for a while. And the interesting thing I thought was I had not really put together did you know he and DK Metcalf, because of quarantine, more or less lived together for six months of the last ten months? <laughs> so I, I heard mean, something about that, yeah. And so they, he's got this young 23-year-old stud of a receiver. That dude's single. He lives with Sierra. I don't think it's too hard to sell to say, come live with us for a little while. And DK's been living with them and working out. And they worked out in San Diego and in uh, Mexico for a little bit when it was warmer. And they, like, they've been on the same page this whole time. I just I see this as a special group moving forward and I don't know how many teams are ever going to go undefeated in my lifetime. Like I said, I was not alive for the Dolphins to actually do it. I saw the Patriots almost do it. But if if there's a team that can do it in the NFL, it's them, obviously because they're sitting here at 5 and 0. But I, I think 2 weeks ago I just said the Chiefs would too. So I, I don't maybe I'm maybe I just don't know anything about football, but I I, I really think there's something <laughs> going on here. Can I throw one more thing in there because you mentioned the Chiefs? Russ could also be motivated by the fact that the Chiefs just paid Patrick Mahomes a half a billion dollars to play quarterback. Like, hey, I'm going to go undefeated right. and then renegotiate my contract. I'm underpaid. Could you imagine? Right. That'd be right, awesome. Right. <laughs> Friends, that is another edition of FN Sports. All football this week. Football's going hot and heavy. So we absolutely love watching our picks again both Saturday, Sunday, and even coaching it on Friday. Parker. <laughs> Why don't you tell folks about when you're actually going to be able to coach on a Friday night? Because that's going to be coming up for you guys pretty soon, right? And also tell them about our socials. <laughs> our first game is this Friday, actually. Uh, we've been in person practicing for a couple weeks now, so we got our first game coming up this Friday. Um, anyway, we'll we'll see how it goes. We got a pretty tough opponent out the gate, and so we'll we'll check in on on Sunday and see how it's, how it went. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and talk about anything, any last advice you want to throw my way at <laughs> Painsworth512. That's at P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H 512, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. I'll respond to the F in Sports Twitter page too. That's at F-I-N-S-P-O-R-T-S, the number two, all one word. I'll use dash P-A. Shaka will use dash C-C. You can figure out which one of us you're talking to. Shaka, we got Instagram. Absolutely. You can find us at F underscore N underscore sports on Instagram. You can find me, my personal Instagram, Twitter at Shaka Cummings at C-H-A-K-A-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S. Friends, thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, share, go out and do all those wonderful things to help out the podcast. Also pray for Parker that they win this Friday. And please remember, when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shopify presents cool sheets from aha to lying awake while you bake isn't cool. I suffered from the wrong kind of hot in bed, heat-induced insomnia. That was my aha moment, bedsheets that keep you cool. Then I thought, how do I even sell bedsheets? That's when I had the idea that made it all possible, signing up on Shopify. With the help of Shopify's intuitive online store creator, I started selling sustainable bamboo sheets that keep cool year-round. And my cool idea became a reality. Hot sleepers around the world rejoice. Shopify makes it simple to keep your cool while starting and growing your business. Start selling with Shopify today and join the commerce platform powering millions of businesses worldwide. From aha to anything is possible. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22.